Welcome to the 3ABN Australia Radio Book Reading Program. The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen White, is an inspirational account of the life and ministry of Jesus. What you are about to hear is a dramatised audio version of this book, created by Nancy Hamilton Myers. To download your free copy, visit thedesireofagesproject.com. Listen now as Nancy continues to read from The Desire of Ages. The Desire of Ages, Chapter 37 The First Evangelists The Apostles were members of the family of Jesus and they had accompanied him as he travelled on foot through Galilee. They had shared with him the toils and hardships that overtook them. They had listened to his discourses. They had walked and talked with the Son of God. And from his daily instruction they had learned how to work for the elevation of humanity. As Jesus ministered to the vast multitudes that gathered about him, his disciples were in attendance, eager to do his bidding and to lighten his labour. They assisted in arranging the people, bringing the afflicted ones to the Saviour, and promoting the comfort of all. They watched for interested hearers, explained the scriptures to them, and in various ways worked for their special benefit. They taught what they had learned of Jesus, and were every day obtaining a rich experience. But they needed also an experience in laboring alone. They were still in need of much instruction, great patience and tenderness. Now, while he was personally with them to point out the errors and counsel and correct them, the Saviour sent them forth as his representatives. While they had been with him, the disciples had often been perplexed by the teaching of the priests and Pharisees, but they had brought their perplexities to Jesus. He had set before them the truths of Scripture in contrast with tradition. Thus he had strengthened their confidence in God's word, and in a great measure had set them free from their fear of the rabbis and their bondage to tradition. In the training of the disciples, the example of the Saviour's life was far more effective than any mere doctrinal instruction. When they were separated from him, every look and tone and word came back to them. Often when in conflict with the enemies of the gospel, they repeated his words, and as they saw their effect upon the people, they rejoiced greatly. Calling the twelve about him, Jesus bade them go out two and two through the towns and villages. None were sent forth alone, but brother was associated with brother, friend with friend. Thus they could help and encourage each other, counselling and praying together, each one's strength supplementing the other's weakness. In the same manner, he afterwards sent forth a seventy. It was the Saviour's purpose that the messengers of the gospel should be associated in this way. In our own time, evangelistic work would be far more successful if this example were more closely followed. The disciples' message was the same as that of John the Baptist and of Christ himself. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were to enter into no controversy with the people as to whether Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. But in his name they were to do the same works of mercy as he had done. He bade them heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils. Freely ye have received, freely give. 
During his ministry, Jesus devoted more time to healing the sick than to preaching. His miracles testify to the truth of his words, that he came not to destroy but to save. His righteousness went before him and the glory of the Lord was his reward. Wherever he went, the tidings of his mercy preceded him. Where he had passed, the objects of his compassion were rejoicing in health and making trial of their newfound powers. Crowds were collecting around them to hear from their lips the works that the Lord had wrought. His voice was the first sound that many had ever heard. His name the first word they had ever spoken. His face the first they had ever looked upon. Why should they not love Jesus and sound his praise? As he passed through the towns and cities, he was like a vital current, diffusing life and joy wherever he went. The followers of Christ are to labor as he did. We are to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, and comfort the suffering and afflicted. We are to minister to the despairing and inspire hope in the hopeless. And to us also the promise will be fulfilled. Thy righteousness shall go before thee, the glory of the Lord shall be thy reward. The love of Christ manifested in unselfish ministry will be more effective in reforming the evildoer than will the sword or the court of justice. These are necessary to strike terror to the lawbreaker, but the loving missionary can do more than this. Often the heart will harden, but it will melt under the love of Christ. The missionary cannot only relieve physical maladies, but he can lead the sinner to the great physician who can cleanse the soul from the leprosy of sin. Through his servants, God designs that the sick, the unfortunate, those possessed of evil spirits shall hear his voice. Through his human agencies, he desires to be a comforter to such as the world knows not. The disciples on their first missionary tour were to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If they had now preached the gospel to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, they would have lost their influence with the Jews. By exciting the prejudice of the Pharisees, they would have involved themselves in controversy, which would have discouraged them at the outset of their labors. Even the apostles were slow to understand that the gospel was to be carried to all nations. Until they themselves could grasp this truth, they were not prepared to labor for the Gentiles. If the Jews would receive the gospel, God proposed to make them his messengers to the Gentiles. Therefore, they were first to hear the message. All over the field of Christ's labor, there were souls awakened to their need and hungering and thirsting for the truth. The time had come to send the tidings of his love to those longing hearts. To all these the disciples were to go as his representatives. The believers would thus be led to look upon them as divinely appointed teachers, and when the Saviour should be taken from them, they would not be left without instructors. On this first tour, the disciples were to go only where Jesus had been before them and had made friends. Their preparation for the journey was to be of the simplest kind. Nothing must be allowed to divert their minds from their great work or in any way excite opposition and close the door for further labor. They were not to adopt the dress of the religious teachers nor use any guise in apparel to distinguish them from the humble peasants. They were not to enter into the synagogues and call the people together for public service. 
Their efforts were to be put forth in house-to-house -house labor. They were not to waste time in needless salutations or in going from house to house for entertainment, but in every place they were to accept the hospitality of those who were worthy, those who would welcome them heartily as if entertaining Christ himself. They were to enter the dwelling with the beautiful salutation, Peace be to this house. That home would be blessed by their prayers, their songs of praise, and the opening of the scriptures in the family circle. These disciples were to be heralds of the truth, to prepare the way for the coming of their master. The message they had to bear was the word of eternal life, and the destiny of men depended upon their reception or rejection of it. To impress the people with its solemnity, Jesus bade his disciples, Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when ye depart out of the house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now the Savior's eye penetrates the future. He beholds the broader fields in which after his death the disciples are to be witnesses for him. His prophetic glance takes in the experience of his servants through all the ages till he shall come the second time. He shows his followers the conflicts they must meet. He reveals the character and plan of the battle. He lays open before them the perils they must encounter, the self-denial that will be required. He desires them to count the cost that they may not be taken unawares by the enemy. Their warfare is not to be waged against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. They are to contend with supernatural forces, but they are assured of supernatural help. All the intelligences of heaven are in this army, and more than angels are in the ranks. The Holy Spirit, the representative of the captain of the Lord's host, comes down to direct the battle. Our infirmities may be many, our sins and mistakes grievous, but the grace of God is for all who seek it with contrition. The power of omnipotence is enlisted in behalf of those who trust in God. Behold, said Jesus, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves, be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Christ himself did not suppress one word of truth, but he spoke it always in love. He exercised the greatest tact and thoughtful kind attention in his intercourse with the people. He was never rude, never needlessly spoke a severe word, never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censor human weakness. He fearlessly denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, but tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. He wept over Jerusalem, the city he loved, that refused to receive him, the way, the truth, and the life. They rejected him, the Savior, but he regarded them with pitying tenderness and sorrow so deep that it broke his heart. Every soul was precious in his eyes. While he always bore himself with divine dignity, he bowed with tenderest regard to every member of the family of God. In all men, he saw fallen souls whom it was his mission to save. 
The servants of Christ are not to act out the dictates of the natural heart. They need to have close communion with God, lest under provocation self rise up, and they pour forth a torrent of words that are unbefitting, that are not as dew or the still waters that refresh the withering plants. This is what Satan wants them to do, for these are his methods. It is the dragon that is wroth. It is the spirit of Satan that is revealed in anger and accusing. But God's servants are to be representatives of him. He desires them to deal only in the currency of heaven, the truth that bears his own image and superscription. The power by which they are to overcome evil is the power of Christ. The glory of Christ is their strength. They are to fix their eyes upon his loveliness. Then they can present the gospel with divine tact and gentleness. And a spirit that is kept gentle under provocation will speak more effectively in favor of the truth than will any argument, however forcible. Those who are brought in controversy with the enemies of truth have to meet not only men, but Satan and his agents. Let them remember the Savior's words, Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Let them rest in the love of God, and the Spirit will be kept calm, even under personal abuse. The Lord will clothe them with the divine penalty. His Holy Spirit will influence the mind and heart, so that their voices shall not catch the notes of the bane of the wolves. Continuing his instruction to his disciples, Jesus said, Beware of men. They were not to put implicit confidence in those who knew not God and open to them their counsels, for this would give Satan's agents an advantage. Man's inventions often counterwork God's plans. Those who build the temple of the Lord are to build according to the pattern shown them in the mount, the divine similitude. God is dishonored and the gospel is betrayed when his servants depend on the counsel of men who are not under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Worldly wisdom is foolishness with God. Those who rely upon it will surely err. They will deliver you up to councils, yea, and before governors and kings shall you be brought for my sake, for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Persecution will spread the light. The servants of Christ will be brought before the great men of the world, who, but for this, might never hear the gospel. The truth has been misrepresented to these men. They have listened to false charges concerning the faith of Christ's disciples. Often their only means of learning its real character is the testimony of those who are brought to trial for their faith. Under examination they are required to answer and their judges to listen to the testimony borne. God's grace will be dispensed to his servants to meet the emergency. It shall be given you, says Jesus, in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. As the Spirit of God illuminates the minds of his servants, the truth will be presented in its divine power and preciousness. Those who reject the truth will stand to accuse and oppress the disciples. But under loss and suffering, even unto death, the Lord's children are to reveal the meekness of their divine example. Thus will be seen the contrast between Satan's agents and the representatives of Christ. The Savior will be lifted up before the rulers and the people. The disciples were not endowed with the courage and fortitude of the martyrs until such grace was needed. 
Then the Saviour's promise was fulfilled. When Peter and John testified before the Sanhedrin Council, men marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Of Stephen it is written that all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Men were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit of which he spake. And Paul, writing of his own trial at the court of the seizures, says, At my first defense no one took my part, but all forsook me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. The servants of Christ were to prepare no set speech to present when brought to trial. Their preparation was to be made day by day in treasuring up the precious truths of God's word and through prayer strengthening their faith. When they were brought into trial, the Holy Spirit would bring to their remembrance the very truths that would be needed. A daily, earnest striving to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent would bring power and efficiency to the soul. The knowledge obtained by diligent searching of the scriptures would be flashed into the memory at the right time. But if any had neglected to acquaint themselves with the words of Christ, if they had never tested the power of his grace in trial, they could not expect that the Holy Spirit would bring his words to their remembrance. They were to serve God daily with undivided affection and then trust him. So bitter would be the enmity to the gospel that even the tenderest earthly ties would be disregarded. The disciples of Christ would be betrayed to death by the members of their own household. Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, he added. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. But he bade them not to expose themselves unnecessarily to persecution. He himself often left one field of labor for another in order to escape from those who were seeking his life. When he was rejected at Nazareth and his own townsmen tried to kill him, he went down to Capernaum, and there the people were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with power. So his servants were not to be discouraged by persecution, but to seek a place where they could still labor for the salvation of souls. The servant is not above his master. The Prince of Heaven was called Beelzebub, and his disciples will be misrepresented in like manner. But whatever the danger, Christ's followers must avow their principles. They should scorn concealment. They cannot remain uncommitted until assured of safety in confessing the truth. They are set as watchmen to warn men of their peril. The truth received from Christ must be imparted to all, freely and openly. Jesus said, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light, and what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. Jesus himself never purchased peace by compromise. His heart overflowed with love for the whole human race, but he was never indulgent to their sins. He was too much their friend to remain silent while they were pursuing a course that would ruin their souls. The souls he had purchased with his own blood. He labored that man should be true to himself, true to his higher and eternal interest. 
The servants of Christ are called to the same work, and they should beware lest in seeking to prevent discord they surrender the truth. They are to follow after the things which make for peace, but real peace can never be secured by compromising principle. And no man can be true to principle without exciting opposition. A Christianity that is spiritual will be opposed by the children of disobedience. But Jesus bade his disciples, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Those who are true to God need not fear the power of men, nor the enmity of Satan. In Christ, their eternal life is secure. Their only fear should be lest they surrender the truth and thus betray the trust with which God has honored them. It is Satan's work to fill men's hearts with doubt. He leads them to look upon God as a stern judge. He tempts them to sin and then to regard themselves as too vile to approach their heavenly Father or to excite his pity. The Lord understands all this. Jesus assures his disciples of God's sympathy for them in their need and weakness. Not a sigh is breathed, not a pain felt, not a grief pierces the soul, but the throb vibrates to the Father's heart. The Bible shows us God in his high and holy place, not in a state of inactivity, not in silence and solitude, but surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of holy intelligences, all waiting to do his will. Through channels which we cannot discern, he is in active communication with every part of his dominion. But it is in this speck of a world in the souls that he gave his only begotten Son to save, that his interest and the interest of all heaven is centered. God is bending from his throne to hear the cry of the oppressed. To every sincere prayer he answers, Here am I. He uplifts the distressed and downtrodden. In all our afflictions he is afflicted. In every temptation and every trial, the angel of his presence is near to deliver. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's notice. Satan's hatred against God leads him to hate every object of the Savior's care. He seeks to mar the handiwork of God, and he delights in destroying even the dumb creatures. It is only through God's protecting care that the birds are preserved to gladden us with their songs of joy. But he does not forget even the sparrows. Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus continues, As you confess me before men, so I will confess you before God and the holy angels. You are to be my witnesses upon earth, channels through which my grace can flow for the healing of the world so I will be your representative in heaven. The Father beholds not your faulty character, but he sees you as clothed in my perfection. I am the medium through which heaven's blessings shall come to you. And everyone who confesses me by sharing my sacrifice for the lost shall be confessed as a sharer in the glory and joy of the redeemed. He who would confess Christ 
must have Christ abiding in him. He cannot communicate that which he has not received. The disciples might speak fluently on doctrines. They might repeat the words of Christ himself. But unless they possessed Christ-like meekness and love, they were not confessing him. A spirit contrary to the spirit of Christ would deny him, whatever the profession. Men may deny Christ by evil speaking, by foolish talking, by words that are untruthful or unkind. They may deny him by shunning life's burdens, by the pursuit of sinful pleasure. They may deny him by conforming to the world, by uncourteous behavior, by the love of their own opinions, by justifying self, by cherishing doubt, borrowing trouble and dwelling in darkness. In all these ways they declare that Christ is not in them. And whosoever shall deny me before men, he says, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. The Saviour bade his disciples not to hope that the world's enmity to the gospel would be overcome and that after a time its opposition would cease. He said, I came not to send peace, but a sword. This creating of strife is not the effect of the gospel, but the result of opposition to it. Of all persecution, the hardest to bear is variance in the home, the estrangement of dearest earthly friends. But Jesus declares, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. The mission of Christ's servants is a high honour and a sacred trust. He that receiveth you, he says, receiveth me, and he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. No act of kindness shown to them in his name will fail to be recognised and rewarded. And in the same tender recognition he includes the feeblest and lowliest of the family of God. Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones, those who are as children in their faith in their knowledge of Christ, a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Thus the Saviour ended his instruction. In the name of Christ, the chosen twelve went out as he had gone to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Join us next time as Nancy Hamilton Myers continues her dramatised audiobook The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.